The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 11, we'll be reading through verse 20 this morning. The word of the Lord. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord, your God. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. We'll be reading through verse 15 this morning. I should say that there's a natural temptation that all pastors face when we come to the Lord's Prayer... And that's we turn it into a sermon series. And we preach a sermon on each and every petition. And I want to say that's a perfectly good temptation to give into. But I'm going to resist that temptation this morning for the simple reason that we're studying through the Heidelberg Catechism in adult Sunday school. And when we get to the Lord's Prayer in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord willing, we will spend seven weeks studying the Lord's Prayer in great detail. And so there's going to be a bit of delayed gratification asked of you this morning. And I'm really only going to give you the big picture and then delve into those details where I think uh, delayed gratification may not be the wisest course. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. The word of our God. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, 
neither will your father forgive your trespasses. What we think about the Lord determines whether and how we pray. Uh, That was the main point of the introductory verses to the Lord's Prayer that we looked at last week. What we think about the Lord determines whether and how we pray. See, the hypocrites act the way that they do, and they pray the way that they do, because they do not know the Lord as they should. They are not approaching the Lord as their absolutely holy an exhaustively sovereign God who has come to be their loving Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. Therefore, rather than pleasing God with their worship, their prayers have become a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God. But what about us? J.I. Packer writes, You may sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching In a single phrase, if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the holy creator. In the same way, you may sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not yet understand Christianity very well at all. Thankfully, by the grace of God, We gather here this morning as those who have come to know this astonishing grace. We exult with the Apostle John. Oh, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Since this is true about us, how then should we pray? Jesus says, pray Like this. Then our Lord gives us a simple but surprisingly full model prayer, a prayer that has two main sections. First, we pray that our Father would be glorified and that his righteous purposes would be established. Second, we come before our Heavenly Father as his children and ask that he would bless us together with the whole family of God. These two major themes are what the Lord's Prayer is all about. But we should note that Jesus adds an important postscript. The way that we treat each other is a critical reflection of whether or not we are really praying as genuine children of God. We begin with Christ's command that we approach the Lord by praying for his glory and for the fulfillment of his righteous purposes in this world. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Jesus begins with something that perhaps after 20 centuries we've taken for granted, but it's really something remarkable. He he teaches us to call the Lord our Father. Do you realize that Jews did not pray like that? That is not the way Jews in the Old Testament approached God in prayer. They did not pray our Father. But Jesus did. As you read through the New Testament, you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus routinely opens his prayers by crying out to his Father, uh, presumably with the Aramaic word Abba, which, for example, Mark actually retains that Aramaic word. He brings it over into the Greek. Um, when Jesus prays his passionate prayer at Gethsemane before his crucifixion. The astonishing truth is that Jesus is calling us to pray to the Father with a similar but not an identical intimacy that he himself has with his own Father from before time began. I do think it's important for us to note it's not an identical intimacy. We actually see this by the fact that when Jesus prays, he never prays to our Father in a way that groups the disciples and him together in that same relationship. Jesus enjoys a unique intimacy with the Father. And yet, is it not astonishing that Jesus calls us to pray with an intimacy that, by analogy, is something like his? That we can now, in him, call Almighty God our very own Father. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, verses 15 and 16, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Isn't it interesting that Paul uh, brings over the Aramaic there as well, and he does it also in his letter to the um, Galatians. He continues, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It is hard to imagine something more shocking to a first century Jew or a greater privilege that we could enjoy than now we can gather together as his people or in the quiet of your home and cry out to God as Abba, Father. Paul drives home the same truth in his letter to the Galatians. There he writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, and if, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Beloved Who can fathom such grace? And yet the staggering nature of this grace presents us with a challenge. Um, A few weeks ago, during the adult Sunday school time, Hope raised a very important question. It's one that we all need to think about. How do we avoid emphasizing the loving fatherhood of God in a way that leads us to becoming overly familiar even casual with the living God so that we forget 
that he is also our majestic and holy king. Do you understand that question? How do we avoid emphasizing the loving fatherhood of God in a way that leads us to becoming overly familiar and casual with the living God so that we forget that he is also our majestic and holy king? Here's a very important part of the answer. We do not draw back from emphasizing the fatherhood of God in all its splendor. Right? That is, we don't try to take the holiness of God, the majesty of God, and the love of God, and dial them back, calm them down until we can get a comfortable balance with them. Rather, what we need to do is embrace everything God has revealed about himself to us. Right? Don't just camp out on one of the ways God has revealed himself, but embrace all of it. And if we do that in the way that God has revealed himself to us in Scripture, what we're going to find is, is that his holiness and his majesty are in fact at times going to make us rather uncomfortable. And so they should. After all, we are still finite, infallible sinners in this world. And we are in the presence of an awesome and majestic God. And yet the holiness and majesty of God will also become increasingly attractive as we are reminded that the God who dwells in unapproachable light has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ so that in Christ we can now call upon God as our very own Father. It might be helpful to recognize that the tension has always been felt Whenever the church has sought to truly know and honor the Lord, uh, for this reason, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom introduces the Lord's Prayer with these words. Grant that we may dare to call upon thee as Father and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, See, John Chrysostom understood that This was an awesome thing to approach the holy and majestic God who spoke the universe into existence and call him Father. Lord, please grant that we would dare to do that. But then, of course, we go on to do the very thing that Jesus taught us to do. I want to suggest that in your private prayers, this may be useful for you. Uh, Don't just launch in. It's not a bad thing to just start with our Father. But sometimes to step back and contemplate before your Holy Father What an awesome privilege it is that it actually is an amazing thing that you go into the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and then pour out your heart before him because he loves you as your father. It isn't accidental that the very first thing that Jesus teaches us to pray for is that our father's name would be hallowed. The Lord is very zealous for the reputation and honor of his name and his character in this world. As the Lord repeatedly says through his prophets, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my name, Then they shall know that I 
am Yahweh. Almighty God cares a great deal about his own honor in this world. Of course, that makes good sense. If I asked you what your chief end is, you'd all say, my chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But beloved, do you know what that means about God? God's not an idolater. He also has himself at the center of his worldview. Almighty God's chief end is that he would glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. God is zealous for the honor of his own name. Yes, salvation is for our good, but it is ultimately for God's glory. But his name would be hallowed to the ends of the earth. Next we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? When I think of God's will being done on heaven and how that could be mirrored on earth, I often think of Calvin's coat of arms. Uh, It was very common in Calvin's day for people that were a little bit prominent to have a coat of arms with a slogan on it. Do you know what Calvin's was? It it was a picture of an outstretched heart held in his hands. And, And the words were, promptly and sincerely, in the service of the Lord. I think that's precisely what we're to pray for. That as we pray for God's will to be done in this world, we start with ourselves and we say, Lord, would you work in my life so that promptly and sincerely I would offer myself to you. And then I pray exactly the same thing for my brothers and sisters in this church and for all my neighbors. We're praying that people would promptly and sincerely offer their lives up as an act of worship to our Father in heaven. Now focus with me on that last phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. Here we have a problem. Uh, North American Christianity has been infected by a defective theology. It is a theology where many people think this world is just a sinking ship. And so our calling is simply to wait until God rescues us off this sinking ship. Right? There, there, there's no sense of going out and trying to change anything, even for the glory of God, because it's just going to keep getting worse anyway. Now, the Bible does make clear that there will be gross sin and opposition to Christ until our Lord comes again to judge the living and the dead. I hope that none of you imagines that somehow God's work in this world of advancing the kingdom means that we're just going to gradually blend over from this age to the age to come. That is, heaven on earth is going to come in this present age before Christ comes again. I think that's a significant distortion of the whole counsel of God. Nevertheless, Jesus is not teaching us to withdraw from a hopeless world. Rather, he is teaching us to pray for the advance of the kingdom of God here on earth in this present age. Right? That his kingdom would come, that his will would be done here, even as it is in heaven. Now, to whatever extent the Lord grants revival and reformation, beloved, that is up to him. See, God has not called us to be his advisors. To whatever extent God chooses to grant us revival and reformation, that is up to him. 
But what God has called us to do is to pray for that very thing and actually to work for that very thing. That's the point of the Great Commission. We're to go out and make disciples by teaching people to obey everything that Jesus taught. Jesus is teaching us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our calling is to be faithful. Let us be faithful by doing that very thing. Now, I do want to add what I think is a very important good word from John MacArthur. I'm going from memory here. This is not a quotation. But I am completely confident that I am capturing the intent of Dr. MacArthur accurately. Dr. MacArthur says, the most important thing we can do to transform culture to the glory of God is to engage in the work of evangelism. Let me say that again. The most important thing we can do to transform culture to the glory of God is to engage in the work of evangelism. See, when God calls us to work for his kingdom to be advanced here on earth, It's not primarily that we would be about trying to get good laws and better programs and better systems and so on. It's about the transformation of people's hearts as they are snatched out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are not primarily praying for better presidents and better justices. Although actually that's a perfectly fine thing to pray for. It's just not the focus of where Jesus is calling us to pray here. What we're praying for is that unbelievers would be converted and believers would be further sanctified so that our lives would more fully reflect God's revealed will in this world. That is, we are praying for the advance of the Great Commission in the confident hope that as God's word goes out, the Holy Spirit will make more people more like Jesus. That is our prayer, and that is our calling. Now, if this was all that Jesus were to teach us to pray, we would be grateful for his teaching. Yet Jesus not only teaches us to pray for our Father to be revered and for his holy purposes to advance in this present age, He also teaches us that we should approach our Heavenly Father like young children, confident that our Father in Heaven delights to hear and to bless our prayers. Please look at verses 11 through 13 with me. Verses 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As R.T. France reminds us, even bread, the most basic of survival rations, comes by God's daily provision, and thus is a proper subject for prayer, rather than to be taken for granted. I've said this to you a number of times, but I think this in many ways is the most difficult petition of the Lord's Prayer for us to actually get. Almost all of us in this room go home this afternoon to a refrigerator full of food and a pantry full of food 
and right down the street there's a market basket. And it can be easy because God has blessed us with such extraordinary abundance to think, I got this part covered, right? Uh, you know, God, I got other things to ask you about, but I already got my daily provisions, my weekly provisions. In fact, I got my retirement pretty well taken care of, thank you very much. And we can forget that we are absolutely dependent upon God for everything, for our next breath, for our next heartbeat, and for every meal that we will ever enjoy. So what do we do? In the midst of such abundance, what can we do to keep our absolute dependence upon the Lord fresh in our minds? My first answer may sound simple, but it's incredibly important. Give thanks. Keep giving thanks for the abundance you have. Give thanks for every meal. Give thanks for every sunrise. Give thanks when you turn the key on your car that it starts and that God has given you a car. Right? Give thanks for everything. Because giving thanks is the flip side of living in prayerful dependence upon God. It is the recognition that not only are we dependent, but God has blessed us with extraordinary abundance. And second... And this is going to require intentionality. I know that many of you just instinctively, you sit down for a meal, you give thanks, and that's a good thing. By the way, you should do that for other aspects of your life too. It's not just food that God provides. But this one's going to take intentionality. You have to keep reminding yourself not to trust in the things that God has given you, but to trust in your Father himself. See, faith is trust in the Lord. It is not a second-order thing where God has given you an abundance, and now you say, I'm fine because i got a full pantry. No, you have to remind yourself you are dependent upon him and not merely the things he has given to us. We are always and everywhere completely dependent upon the Lord, as I say, for our next breath, for our next heartbeat, and for our next meal. Beloved, please check your heart. And make sure that you are not taking the Lord's gracious provision for granted. And one of the most important ways to do this is to keep making sure that you are giving thanks with a grateful heart for everything you experience and everything that you have. Next, Jesus calls us to approach the throne of grace asking for the forgiveness of our sins. There's a great deal that could be said about this. We'll get there eventually. Uh, But this morning, I just want to point out that in corporate prayer, we quite appropriately keep this general. We we don't uh, live naked lives spiritually before all our brothers and sisters, before all our neighbors. God is not calling you to, to pour out every sinful thought you've had, even to people that you care deeply about. Uh, We're supposed to, though, confess our particular sins particularly when we've offended another person to tell them, right? So if I've harmed you in some way, if I lied to you last week, I don't come to you and say, well, you know, I'm not perfect. Will you forgive me? No, I have to confess, I hurt you in this way. I deceived you in this way. Would you forgive me for this particular sin and restore our relationship? And of course, we have to confess our particular sins particularly when we go before Almighty God. 
What, what I want to encourage you is don't take the way that we pray in church, where we're keeping it general, into your private prayer closet. Because if you simply pray, Lord, you know I've done some bad things, please forgive me, then you have a tendency to gloss over your sins. Like individually, they're no big deal. Yeah, I'm not perfect. And beloved, the Bible does not teach us that nobody's perfect. Well, it does teach that, but it doesn't teach it in that way. Rather, it says you have a relationship with your holy God, and you ought to come clean before him in the confidence that as you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This does lead us to a paradox. As Sinclair Ferguson points out, the Lord's Prayer leads us to embrace the paradox that fellowship with God in prayer means sorrow for our sin, yet joy in forgiveness and grace. Prayer involves struggle. But the struggle is not that of persuading our God. See, that's what the hypocrites thought. They had to twist God's arm, right, by by their many words or by their eloquence. The struggle is not that of persuading our God. Rather, it's the struggle involved of being subdued by God, coming out of the dark and secret places in which we have been hiding the truth about ourselves and laying the whole of our lives bare before him. Isn't that good? Prayer involves struggle, but the struggle is not that of persuading our God. Rather, it's the struggle involved in being subdued by God, coming out of the dark and secret places in which we have been hiding the truth about ourselves and laying the whole of our lives bare before him. Finally, the Lord teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You may have noticed that I translated that request somewhat differently than our English Standard Version of the Bible does. Uh, Let's start with temptation. Since Almighty God doesn't tempt his children to sin, it should be obvious that this prayer is not about asking God, don't tempt us. That, That can't be the meaning. Rather, it's asking the Lord not to bring us to that place where we will be severely tempted by others, right? That's the point. This will make more sense once we grasp the second part of this petition. Now, the ESV renders it, but deliver us from evil. Now, some of you have been praying that way your whole lives. Time you were a little kid, you grew up in your church, and they prayed the Lord's Prayer, you prayed, deliver us from evil, and then you came here, and we prayed, deliver us from the evil one. And you're going, who's right? can't both be right. Well, in one sense, there's good news. Properly understood, both ways of praying, deliver us from evil, from certain calamities and so on, um, is a good thing to pray. And praying that the Lord would deliver you, rescue you from the evil one, that is from Satan, is also an appropriate thing to pray. So you're not in trouble either way. But second, if I didn't know how translations are made and sold, that last part is important, how they are sold, because that drives often how they're made, Um, I would find the choice of the ESV almost inexplicable. 
a substantial majority of the best scholarship, along with the New International Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New Revised Standard Version, the Net Bible, the New Jerusalem Bible, the New King James Version, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the Christian Standard Bible, all translate this petition as deliver us from the evil one. So what's the ESV thinking? Well, I haven't talked to the translators about this verse. But I can tell you, I know enough about how translations are done that what happens is, is there's a big block of people out there who are used to praying, deliver us from evil. And the people who put the Bibles out, they want to sell them to people. So if they tell you the very same thing you've been praying, that's going to make you feel better about the Bible. It doesn't throw off your liturgical habits. Right? And that often can drive the way translations get done. It's just how it works. I, it's part of the problem with most translations being um, held by copyrights. But there are good reasons for realizing it ought to be translated the evil one. Now, I want to be clear. It's plausible. It's possible. Right? It's not impossible to turn the Greek there into deliver us from evil. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. It's not like they don't have any conscience at all. Right? But there are good reasons for translating this as the evil one. I'm going to give you three of them. First, the word evil in Greek has the Greek article upon it. Now, you could still translate that generically, it's called a generic article, as though it's an abstract quality of evil, but it makes more sense to translate it with the article as the evil one. But second, and far more importantly... Matthew will later use the identical Greek construction of the article with the Greek word for evil in Matthew 13, 19 and Matthew 13, 38. And in both cases, the ESV translates it, the evil one, because it couldn't mean something else in those contexts. It just couldn't. So the implication would be, if you're going through and translating this for yourself, is don't you think Matthew would be using the same phrase to mean the same thing back here in the Lord's Prayer as well. Third, the translation evil one helps us understand the first half of the petition. See, Jesus is not teaching us to ask that the Lord keep us, keep us from every single temptation and trouble in life. In fact, Almighty God uses temptations and troubles in your life for your good. You think of an athlete. You know, the athlete that never experiences any resistance, you know, like lifting weights, they don't get stronger. The way they get stronger is you keep increasing the weights a little bit, and you do a little bit more repetition, then you increase the weights a little bit more. God does that in your life. That is, God brings hardship into your life precisely for your good. Uh, Clearly, the Lord isn't calling us to pray that we would simply ride a smooth roller coaster from now until he takes us home. Rather, Jesus is telling us to pray that we would not undergo the same sort of assault from Satan that he himself experienced in the wilderness. Say that again. Jesus is telling us to pray that the Lord would not lead us to experience the same sort of assault from Satan that he himself experienced in the wilderness, which, by the way, happens right before he teaches the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It's from Matthew chapter 4. But might help us to remember that the Father and the Holy Spirit did not merely allow Jesus to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Rather, the Holy Spirit, carrying out the Father's will, 
drove Jesus into the wilderness. You could say led, but drove Jesus into the wilderness precisely to be tempted. Thus, Jesus reverses the fall. Adam gave in to the temptation of Satan while living in paradise. The second Adam overcame Satan in the wilderness while famished. He was famished from going without food for 40 days and 40 nights. And he resisted Satan under those circumstances. And Jesus is teaching us to pray, Father, do not lead me into that sort of temptation. See, we are not called upon to imitate Jesus in everything that he's done. Um, the Lord has a strict limit of one Messiah per universe, and you are not him. Right? So we ought to recognize our weakness in who we are and pray as Jesus calls us to pray. Father, don't lead me into that place of temptation that is too great for me. Rather, I'm grateful that you had Jesus overcome Satan on my behalf so I don't have to in my own power. Now, please realize that if you continue to pray for the Lord to deliver you from evil, you are not asking for anything amiss. But what Jesus almost certainly intended is that we would ask our Father in heaven to deliver us from the evil one. This ends the prayer proper. But Jesus adds an important postscript which connects with our own request for the forgiveness of our sins. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, quite clearly, you read the rest of the Bible, Jesus is not teaching us that it's his finished work and your forgiving other people that serve as the foundation for your own forgiveness or your own salvation. That's not what Jesus means. Uh, that would rob God of his glory. It would also rob you of assurance. After all, if that was true, you'd go through every day of your life going, am I forgiving people enough? How much is enough? Right? Thankfully, God doesn't want you to be twisting in the wind asking yourself, have I forgiven enough so that God's going to forgive me? Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's not what Jesus is teaching. So what is he teaching? With these words, Jesus is reminding us that prayer is organically connected with the rest of our lives. It's not as though you come to God and you just happen to say the right words and you're going to be fine. Your prayers are organically connected with the rest of your lives. When God saves us, the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. And he vitally unites us with Jesus Christ. A genuine child of God has been called and empowered to become more and more like Jesus. That's what God's doing in your life. He caused you to be born again. He has filled you with his Holy Spirit. And now he's calling you and empowering you to become more and more like Jesus. What if you're not? Then you're not a child of God. That's just a notional idea to say I signed a book somewhere. I walked an aisle. 
Those who are children of God are disciples who are becoming more like Jesus. Not perfectly, but God is truly at work in us. If a person is not becoming someone who increasingly forgives those who sin against him, then his life is falsifying his claim that he is a true child of God. And saying the Lord's Prayer over and over again won't change that fact. Indeed, such a person has no right to approach God by saying, Our Father. Right? Because they're not yet a child. That person needs to be born again. Now, this warning is serious, but please keep things in balance. Jesus gives this prayer specifically to his disciples. And the main thrust of this prayer is that as God's children, we pray first that our Father would be glorified and that his righteous purposes would be established. Then second, we come before our Heavenly Father as his children and ask that he would bless us together with the whole family of God. How do we put this into practice in our day-to-day lives in the week and weeks ahead. Three things. Um, First, by all means, pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The Lord's Prayer is a model for prayer, but it was actually also intended simply to be prayed, recited in this way. The church has done that since the earliest days right down to today. In fact, one of the oldest Christian documents after the death of the apostles is the Didache, the teaching what that means. Vedidike is a brief attempt to practically apply the teaching of the apostles in the life of the early church. And intriguingly, the Didache introduces the Lord's Prayer by saying this, pray thus three times a day. And the scholars almost universally agree that the thus there means pray in these words. This isn't just a model. It's saying, I I want you to Literally pray what Jesus told you to pray three times a day. Now, I wouldn't want to be that prescriptive in your life, but I'll tell you something interesting I think the early church was doing. Um, Remember that faithful Jews would pray the Shema three times a day. And I think the Didache is saying, instead of like those Jews praying the Shema, you ought to be praying the Lord's Prayer. It fits in the same place. And I think they're onto something there because the same centrality that the Shema had in ancient Israel among Jews is replaced by the same centrality of calling upon God as our Father and praying for the advance of his kingdom and that his righteous purposes would be done in this world. Again, I'm not saying pray it three times a day. I think that's overly prescriptive. But let us pray the Lord's Prayer frequently. Let me add, let's make sure that we're praying it intelligently. Play it slowly, intelligently. Think about what you're saying and pray it with reverence because of the one to whom you pray. After all, Jesus has just warned us that we will not be heard if we babble like the pagans do. Second, we should definitely use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern and as a plumb line that shapes the rest of our prayers. Uh, You can do this by praying the entire Lord's Prayer about one aspect of your life. So you pray about your work, and and you pray, you know, Father, would you hallow your name in my workplace? Would your will increasingly be done here? 
Right? We want to see your kingdom manifesting itself right here where I'm working. Right? Would you forgive each, the people that are here? Would you forgive me my sins? You can pray that the Lord would provide for those needs that the company has or the organization has in order to be fruitful and productive in this world. That is, you can pray the Lord's Prayer through any aspect of your life and be specific that way. Correspondingly, you can take one petition, like hallowed be thy name, and you can pray it about yourself, for your children, that God's name would be hallowed on their lips, in your classroom, in your sports team, in your work, in your neighborhood, in this church. By the way, you'll find that if you do those two things, that the Lord's Prayer is inexhaustible in the way that it can help you in this simple pattern of prayer to pray in accordance with God's will. I do want to add that the Lord, through his word, teaches us a great deal more about prayer than is found in the Lord's Prayer. It is a model prayer, but it does not exhaust the biblical teaching on prayer. For example, the Lord's Prayer doesn't contain a confession of sin, something that clearly from the rest of Scripture we know we ought to do with God in our prayers. As a general, forgive us our debts, but it doesn't have uh, anything that's really specific there about forgiving, I mean, about confessing our specific sins. Um, Furthermore, there's actually no thanksgiving in the prayer. And quite obviously, the Bible teaches us that we ought to have thanksgiving in prayer. So don't use this prayer as a straitjacket and cut everything else off, but by all means, do use this as a model that helps shape the way that you pray. Third, remember that what we think about God determines whether and how we pray. In teaching us this prayer, Jesus teaches us about God, about what his priorities are. And he also teaches us that he is our loving Heavenly Father who delights to meet our needs. As Jesus will tell us in the next chapter, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so, beloved, keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. For your Father in heaven delights to keep on answering and to keep on giving. Amen.